Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on down and check out our wares. We've got all sorts of uh, web-only content available to everybody. And then if you like what you see, maybe you want to up your experience and become a paid member of the Dispatch community. So I'm very excited about today's podcast um uh we have a first timer here so he's got a ways to go before he gets his gold jacket but um he is uh i've been a fan of his for a long time first met him in the early 90s and when he was doing some work on kindly inquisitors a fantastic book at ai when i was a young policy gnome there and uh one of the things about jonathan roush our guest is Washington is full of people who, as they say, are um, often in error and never in doubt. And one of the wonderful things about Jonathan is he's rarely in error, but often in doubt. He is a good skeptical person who likes to question his own assumptions, uh, his own biases. He's is a, um, a lot like Russ Roberts that way, is that part of his entire philosophy is to acknowledge that people get things wrong, and so you should be careful and check that maybe something may be too good to be true. And one thing that is not too good to be true is what he calls our constitution of knowledge, which is the title of his new book, which in some ways feels like a sequel to kindly inquisitors. Um, but I'll let him say whether that's in fact true or not. Um, Jonathan Rausch, welcome to the remnant. I, I am happy to be here with you. One of my most successful mentees. <laughs> I take all credit for your subsequent career after we met at AEI. Uh, and, and that's fine by me. You, that's a very Washington thing to do. It's actually the most Washington thing you've ever done. I should also say for listeners, uh, we are having Jonathan, even though he is a, I guess, a senior fellow at Brookings, which even though as an AI guy, we all know Brookings must be destroyed. But um, Still, we we're, we're happy to have him here. Oh, we'll we'll see what you say when we reopen the cafeteria. Where else are you going to eat? <laughs> That's true. Um, okay, so uh, let's just my my standard favorite question to get when I'm on a book tour is the following: What's your book about? <laughs> my book is about the norms and institutions that keep us Americans and the world collectively anchored to reality instead of unreality, and that keep us sane and civil and um, stable. And it's about attacks on that system from the left and also from the right in the form of new kinds of information warfare. 
um, that are manipulating our minds and our media and making it very difficult to have knowledge and very difficult not to go to war with each other. Um, I'm about quarter way through the book. I picked it up yesterday and um, or two days ago. I kind of time is a flat circle and I powered through a bunch of it and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to finishing it. I, I really love it so far. I did make the mistake of, cause I have the electronic version of searching through it. And I was dismayed to find out that even though the title is reminiscent of two of the most famous things that Friedrich Hayek wrote, um, the constitution of Liberty and, uh, knowledge and its uses or the, the knowledge problem essay, Knowledge and its uses in society, I think is the full title. Anyway, there's no mention of Friedrich Hayek in here, which I thought was interesting. Um, and at some point, I'm going to demand that you defend yourself. But um, you use constitution not just as a sort of unwritten constitution or an epistemic you know, descriptor. You're actually making an extended metaphor or analogy or comparison to the written constitution of the United States. Can you explain that just a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's not even a metaphor or an analogy. It's, it's more than that. Um, it is a my title is a riff on Hayek. I, I stole it from Hayek. I love Hayek. The title itself is my Hayek reference. <laughs> so the idea here, if there's one idea in the book, which I think might outlive me and be read, you know, 5,000 years from now, it's the notion that we have an epistemic constitution. And then in fact, it works a lot like the U S constitution. The big difference, of course, the U.S. Constitution is written down and was written by people. But most of it, of course, is not on paper. It's the subsequent norms and institutions and balances of power and you know judicial review, all the stuff that came after. So my insight was, well, we do reality in much the same way that we do politics. And that is, we said we got tired of going to war with each other in order to settle disputes. Let's try an organized system that forces persuasion instead. Let's use checks and balances, pit faction against faction, in order to resolve these disputes and, and do it in a constructive yet dynamic way. So that's what the U.S. Constitution does. The only way to make a law is to negotiate with other people, sometimes total strangers, make deals even if you don't want to make deals, tons of institutions to mediate that process, to get that done, lots and lots and lots of structure. It's not just everybody votes every four years and that's all that needs to happen. Same is true for the constitution of knowledge, how we make knowledge, which is marketplace of ideas is not sufficient. It's necessary. But if all you do is have free speech and nothing else, you've got a massive confusion in which people are basically confirming their biases, um, showing their, their tribal loyalty to their friend, going down epistemic rabbit holes, dividing into sects, and then going into war or becoming totalitarian. And that's, you know, the first 200,000 years of human history. Some people come along, some of the same people with some of the same ideas and backgrounds as the framers of the U.S. Constitution and said, no, let's turn it over to a network. This is going to be a network of people checking each other's ideas. And they're going to be strangers, and they're going to have to deal with each other. They're kind of going to have to compromise, bargain, negotiate. Jonah's going to have to say, I think X is true. Roush is going to say that's not true, and here's why. The only way it gets in the textbook is if they can convince other people that something is true. And so it becomes very much a system has got checks and balances. Same basic Madisonian idea. You pit bias against bias. You don't try to get rid of bias. You need bias. You just need different biases. 
That's Madison's idea of enlarging the sphere, that you need a large republic with lots of factions. So the more you look at it, the more you realize that the way we make decisions about reality collectively, the way we do science and journalism and law and government is very similar to the way we do politics. And it should be because a lot of the same people did a lot of the work. Yeah. So at at one point in the book, you make this point about how you could have a, a shaggy old man working alone um, in Vienna or wherever it was. Uh, and he may be doing the greatest scientific, making the greatest scientific advancements in, in, in millennia, or he could be a psychopath who's writing all work, no play makes Johnny and doll bullet boy all day. And the only way you find out whether it's great science or total garbage is when you hand it over to other people, because science isn't something you can do alone. Is that about, do I have that basically yeah. right? Yeah, that's, that's right. Science, knowledge, learning, objective reality never comes out of our heads. It can't, even in principle, because there's no way to tell whether that shaggy-haired person in the attic in Bern, Switzerland is Albert Einstein or a lunatic. Until those ideas are acquired by this network, greatest social network of all time, puts you know Facebook to shame. The ideas are acquired by this network, examined by others in an impersonal way. That's crucial. You don't get to say that, you know, I, Jonathan Rausch, am in charge of the system and get to say what's true and what's not true. Everyone has to be able to persuade everyone using evidence that comes out in theory the same way, no matter who's looking. And only when that system acquires whatever it is this guy in Bern, Switzerland is working on and looks at it and evaluates it and checks it and then passes it along through the system. That's how you get objective reality. And that's what objective reality is. It's the set of propositions that have been validated by that system and only that system. And that's where the problem comes because a lot of people prefer other systems. Um, yeah. So I, I love this point. Um, I've been making a related argument. One, because I'm also a Hayek guy, you know, persistent trial and error is. It's the only thing that got us out of the muck. <laughs> and that's not the only thing, but it was the indispensable thing. And um, and then there was that brief moment, you know, that sort of Deirdre McCloskey moment where all of a sudden innovation was deemed to be a positive thing, which is really one of the other things that got us into what I, in my book I called miracle. But um, part of the argument I always like to make is that that civilization, you know, people talk about, remember, Remember Barack Obama and Elizabeth Warren got a lot of flack, including from me and given the context for saying, you know, you didn't build that. Um, And in the context that they were talking about, I was a little annoyed by it. But in a broader sense, they have a perfectly fine point, which is that we are all born on the shoulder, essentially on the shoulders of giants. We are all born with this massive cloud computing system called, you can call it Western civilization. You can call it the extended order. You can call it accumulated knowledge or whatever it is, but we rely on that system outside of ourselves for the vast majority of things that make our lives possible the way we want them to be. And we take them for granted. And, um, and that system depends on people being able to figure out what, you know, by being, being able to figure out what is true and what is not true in a usable sense. And yeah, that's the system well, talking about. Well, you mentioned at the outset that you see this book as kind of a sequel to Kindly Inquisitors, and it, and it is. 
And let me say where I think it expands, where it differs from Kindly Inquisitors. So Kindly Inquisitors is a book I wrote 28 years ago about new attacks to free thought from, for example, humanitarians who want to say that uh, offensive language is a form of violence. And it stood the test of time, but it, it missed something important. And it's the same thing that I think most accounts miss, including the one you just gave, which is that we make two mistakes. First, we imagine that Human beings, the way we're going to get truth is we're going to sit down as individuals and sort through the evidence and figure it out rationally. Well, that never works. We're very, very bad at that. And sitting down and looking at the internet sends us down all kinds of rabbit holes. Rationality comes from outside ourselves. It comes from this interaction with this impersonal group. And then the second mistake we make is the Oliver Wendell Holmes mistake. It's not really a mistake. The marketplace of ideas is a great concept, but it leads us to a complacency where we think, just have free speech and knowledge takes care of itself. It will somehow magically arise from the interaction of ideas. Well, ideas don't interact, people do, and people interact badly. Very conservative insight, you'll understand this. People interact badly unless they have a lot of structures and institutions and incentives to interact constructively. And the part that, that kindly inquisitors left out is all the stuff going on in the middle that organizes this global network, this global conversation, so that it can proceed in a smart, impersonal, constructive way. It can find the arguments that can be resolved, figure out how to resolve them, put the ideas in constructive conflict. So what are we talking about specifically? Journalism, science, but entirety of academia, including you know history, literary criticism. We're talking about journals, newsrooms, editors, fact-checkers, copy editors, publishers. We're talking about agencies of government that do research like NOAA. We're talking about the intelligence community, which does blue team, red team to evaluate ideas. The legal community, very fact-based. It's all about sorting out truth from falsehood, doing that adversarially in court. Um, FBI, investigative. Uh, all of these are part of the reality-based community because they're all in the business of, in a systematic way, organizing this kind of this search for truth, and, and, and creating what I call the reality-based community, which is all of that. And the reason that's so important, Jonah, is it's so easy for us to just assume the system takes care of itself. You know, we'll just leave it alone, we'll have free speech, we're done. Well, we're not, and we now know that because some very powerful actors um, discussed in detail in the book. We're talking about cancelers, disinformation artists. Donald Trump, I think, and his minions are the biggest. These people figured out the weakness of the system is the norms and institutions. They're not going to attack free speech head on. They're going to attack all of these nodes in the system where the actual work gets done. And they're doing that and they're doing it very effectively. And to rise to that challenge, people like you and me need to understand what it is they're attacking. What is this constitution that they're undermining, this system? Um, okay, so let's move into the... Uh more truth seeking colloquy portion of the podcast. You said it was the weakness of the institute. They recognize the weaknesses of the system was the institutions. Couldn't you make the argument that the weakness of the system was the fact that the institutions have become so weak and that, um, like the rise of Donald Trump, for instance, would have been impossible even 15 years earlier, because in fact, he ran in or tried to run in 2000 or no, 2000. 
I think it was two thousand. Was it two thousand? Yeah, it was two thousand. He tried to run and gave up very quickly because everyone thought he was a joke. And the party is. I mean, this is something that you and I both care and are on the exact same page about about the the weakness of parties, the problem of primaries, and all these kinds of things. But we've also seen the the erosion of of trust in all sorts of institutions. I would argue that we've also seen the erosion in the in the degree to which a lot of these institutions deserve trust. A lot of them have frittered away a lot of built up capital, reputational capital. And so 20, 30, 40 years ago, you could have the same insight. If we could just destroy these institutions, these nodes in this great machinery of knowledge creation, um, and we can get to ultimate power. And the problem is, is that those nodes were not nearly so weak or fragile. Those fortresses had better walls and better moats and better guards, and they've all been um, eroded over the last 40 years for all sorts of reasons. What is that wrong, right? Do you agree, disagree? Well, we're certainly coming from the same place on the danger of neglecting institutions, assuming they take care of themselves. I'm a big fan of Yuval Levin and his thinking deeply influenced this book. It's probably influenced you as well. He's, but, he's he's the center square on the remnant podcast. Heard, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's the guy who has really figured out we've we've we forgot what institutions do, right. which is they're not just there to serve us; they're, they're they're there to shape us. They're there to give us the guidelines that allow us to interact constructively as human beings. Where I would put, let's call it a different emphasis than you, Jonah, mm-hmm. is you notice all the passive voice constructions. In the case you just made, institutions, uh, trust in institutions decline, um, they were, and so forth. Well, why did that happen? My claim is that a reason that happened, I would argue the biggest reason that happened, has been that the last 40 or 50 years we have seen sustained and systematic attacks on institutions by people and causes that benefit from demolishing them. We see this originally on the left. I would recommend Jonah Goldberg as an author on that subject, (laughs) starting in the 60s and 70s. But then we see it picked up with enormous enthusiasm and great effectiveness on the right, starting, you know, in the sometime in the 80s, Rush Limbaugh, um, conservative talk radio, then Fox News gets into the picture, and then, you know, people like Patrick Buchanan, Sarah Palin. All of these people have a stock in trade saying, you can't trust these institutions. They're against you. They're captive by the left. You know, there's some truth in this claim, but for the most part, I think it's overstated. And this leads over time to what I think is a deliberate diminution of legitimacy of these institutions. I actually, you know, I'm a minority maybe of one. A lot of people just just flatly disagree with this. But I think on balance, American institutions over the past 50 years have functioned remarkably well. Yeah, okay, Vietnam. Yeah, okay, inflation. Some bad things happened. But I ask people, what other country and what other time would you take their institutions over ours today? And the answer, I think, is, you know, actually, they're doing a pretty good job in an environment that has become increasingly hostile to institutional thinking. So yeah, you're right. A lot of water under the bridge comes along. But then then some things happen that turbocharge these attacks. Uh, you get social media and these new technologies. Um, and you get the rise of the demagogic streak on the right of a kind that we hadn't seen before. 
And you get the rise of campaigns on the left, which are totalistic. Um, and you get the rise of new kinds of information warfare, really the weaponization of old kinds of information warfare. And you get all that in the last five years, and that takes it to the next level. That's kind of the story I'm telling. So um, I have a lot of different questions along these lines. Um, but let me start here. So I am, as listeners know, I've been off and on. I keep picking up, putting it back down, doing this sort of liberal fascism reconsidered, where I, I try to get what I got right and what I got wrong and be honest about it, um, particularly in the context of Trump, because I no longer, I mean, I'll just, you know, spoiler alert, my confidence that the right was immune to fascist temptation is, is gone because, uh, I mean, January 6th alone, I think demonstrates that. Never mind, um, you know, we're recording this a couple of days after Michael Flynn said that, you know, we should have a, a military coup. <laughs> um, and, and, the day that Marine Dowd is reporting that Donald Trump is telling associates that he expects to be reinstalled as president in August. Um, and, uh, so, uh, anyway, but one of the reasons why I'm doing that is doing this, trying to do this thing is one, cause I think it's a, something that intellectual honesty requires, but two in, in the, in working on my last book, I've really come to the conclusion that I have long overemphasized. I still believe still with Irving crystal ideas rule the world. Ideas are super important as Richard Weaver wrote and ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. I agree with all that, but, um, I no longer think that, you know, right now there are all these people who are talking about how I was just listening to this debate that Barry Weiss did with David French and, and Chris Rufo, I think is his name about, um, critical race theory and, and, you know, Rufo's argument sounds very much like something I would have said in 2008, you know, here's Herbert Marcuse, the Frankfurt school Marxists. They said this, they argued for that. It trickles down through these institutions and bada bing, you have, you have critical race theory and cancel culture in grade schools. And I'm not saying that that story isn't, doesn't have truth to it. I think it does have truth to it, but I have much more persuaded by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukyanov and those guys about this is about thinking this has a lot more to do with, I guess what the Marxists would call material conditions. You know, it has to do with things like social media and how that changes our brains and psychology and how we raise kids in, in not the ideological parts, but in the day to day, how do you handle emotions? What do you think about how do you handle your own instincts and these kinds of things? I think romanticism never really went away. Romanticism was this rebellion against the enlightenment and this idea that reason could govern everything. And the romantics said, no, no, um, that's where you get original nationalism. That's where you get all of these sort of primacy of feelings over, over facts kind of stuff. And I feel like we are in a remarkable romantic age and it has a lot more to do with psychology than it has to do with ideas that escaped some German lab in the 1960s or the 1930s. Um, where do you put the role of ideological drivers versus these other things? Because I know you're sympathetic to, to Haidt and Lukianov, um, but you also make a lot of arguments that have to do with sort of ideological drivers of this stuff. How, where, where is your balance between the two? It's a few things at once. Um, I hate giving long answers, but in some of these, it's... It was a long it, question, so you're allowed. <laughs> it's, it, it's so hard not to. 
So there are a few elements, but one is the one I want to try to emphasize in this book and try to get people thinking harder about. One element is ideological. On the left, you saw the rise of what I call the humanitarian threat in kindly inquisitors, the notion that offensive words are a form of violence. And and so criticism is a human rights violation, which means science is a human rights violation because it's all about criticism and often hurting people's feelings. Um, So that was a new idea. That then morphs more recently into emotional safetyism, the notion that we have a right not to be traumatized by ideas that we encounter. Um, You've got ideas in the pot that you've written about, you know, deconstructionism and Marcuse and all that. So yeah, there's no question that ideology plays a role. There's also no question that technology plays a role. It's a whole chapter in the book about how to think about the epistemic environment of social media. And the bottom line is it's basically hostile to truth because it's built as an advertising vehicle to capture people's attention, regardless of truth value. And it turns out that what captures people's attention and is cheap to produce is outrage and fakery. Uh, So a lot of work is going to have to be done on that. So you've got technology. But then the third big thing that I want to try to refocus on is the second big message of the book. The first big message we discussed, which is it's not just a marketplace of ideas. It's a constitution of knowledge. It's a lot of institutions and, and norms and systems that we have to get right or we will lose our grip on reality and cease to be a democracy. Point number two, you're being manipulated. So again, we talk about this stuff as if, you know, bad things just happen, like it's a natural disaster or a change in the weather. The cognitive defects that people like Jonathan Haidt and other psychologists have been pointing out now since the 1930s are deep vulnerabilities in the human psyche that are easy to manipulate and have been manipulated since time immemorial, but especially since the early 20th century. When Lenin and his regime, and then Hitler and Goebbels and their regime pioneer information war techniques, information warfare techniques that are very good at exploiting vulnerabilities like familiarity heuristic. The more often you hear something, the more likely you are to think that it's true, even if it's false. And that's true in many cases, even if you're hearing it debunked. This is why Goebbels repeated his lies again and again and gloried, rejoiced when they were refuted. Tribalism very easy to exploit. We look at what our friends say. We look at what people around us say to decide what we believe. Well, it turns out you can game that by creating a false consensus, doing a lot of preference falsification, as it's called, so that you suppress one side of the argument, you elevate the other. You can do that by putting dissidents in jail, or you can just do it by manipulating social media to clobber anyone who disagrees with you. But the result of that is people look around and they think, well, no one believes what I believe, so maybe it's not true. In any case, I'm not going to speak out. That's cancel culture. The Russians developed something called the fire hose of falsehood technique, which is Donald Trump's primary technique. This exploits the fact that our attention span is limited and that we're in a cacophonous, noisy information environment where we can't tell which end is up. We become confused, disoriented. We no longer know who to believe, who to trust. That opens the door to cultic leaders, demagogues, people who say, well, you can trust me, but at any rate, you can't trust anyone. It's what the Russians do all the time with their multiple inconsistent, often, as Peter Pomerantz calls it, carnivalistic propaganda. It's not true. It doesn't have to be true. They're not trying to persuade anyone. They're just trying to confuse you. 
This is what Donald Trump is doing when, you know, his first acts in office are openly just just brazenly saying that lying about the weather during his inauguration and the crowd size. It's what he's been doing ever since. And it's the heart of the Stop the Steal campaign. You know, dozens of completely made up theories, inconsistent with each other, improbable individually. But that's not the point. You just want to convince people that they that no one really knows what's going on. I could go on. But all of these tactics are well-known tactics. What's new is their application on a large scale in American politics using new technologies that have turbocharged them. Once you do that, once you take the ideologies and the technologies and you combine them with these powerful techniques of cognitive warfare, you get where we are right now, which is a society that is polarized, divided, hostile, has a decreasing grip on the truth. Um, You get forked realities and eventually you get civil war. So buy gold. No. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I, look, we are very much on the same page about all this. It's just, um, and I think it's it's one of these things that is is like all very serious and profound problems. They're they're somewhat overdetermined, in the sense that you can point to all sorts of factors that are a part of it. Um, and you could probably even take out some of the factors and you still would have yeah. gotten something close to the mess that we're in. And so sometimes you get, you, you know, Bill Buckley always used to use that Latin phrase, uh, you know, to, to include is to exclude. Um, you know, if you start listing the factors and you don't list the, some of the other factors, it's, it, it makes it sound like you don't think those things were problems when in fact those are problems too, which is that we got a, a yeah, lot of problems. Yeah. Um, I'd like to get you to take really quick on this one point and then I'll go back to the other stuff I wanted to ask you. But so I don't know if you saw last or recently, cause I don't know when this is going to air. Um, uh, there's a debate brewing about whether conservatism, intellectual conservatism is to blame for the rise of Trump in the sense that it created the permission structure. Um, you know, uh, Joshua Tate has this argument that the rights that, you know, the, the two cheers for democracy attitude or one and a half cheers of democracy attitude found among some, uh, conservative intellectuals, whether it's Leo Strauss or, um, you know, uh, Oakshot or whoever, um, got us to where we are. I, I think he's misreading the moment in all sorts of ways, but it's an interesting argument. There are other people who some on the left, some on the sort of the more virulently anti-Trump, uh, right. Argue that it's been, that it was all a con from the beginning, that it was, uh, all a grift from the beginning and, um, and intellectual conservatism is why you got Trump. Um, my own take, just so you know where I'm coming from, is while I am profoundly disappointed and dismayed by what the Trump era has revealed in a lot of people, a lot of conservative intellectuals, um, I don't think the, I, I think the problem is not with the arguments that Irving Kristol and, and, and William F. Buckley and uh, Wilmore Kendall and James Burnham were making 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, the problem is 
because of these material conditions we've been discussing, conservatism has been in large respects overtaken by populism, by a business model that depends on, in, in conservative media, that depends on constantly keeping people angry, on constantly uh, trying to hide or diminish the faults on our own side while um, exacerbating and exaggerating the faults on the other side. Um, and that this is something that if you described it objectively to almost any of those conservative intellectuals 40 years ago, they would say, that sounds awfully dystopian. I do not want to go to there. They wouldn't say, ah, my ideas have been, will be fulfilled one day. Um, where do you see it? You're, you're not a conservative, but you are conservative and libertarian adjacent. Um, and you, well, I don't know what I am, but, but I, you're willing I think to I'm, listen to people, you know, and you, yeah, and, and I'm have, a, I'm a Burkean. Right. Um, no, I think that's when right. I read Burke, I said, I'm kind of a Burkean liberal, mm -hmm. uh, whatever that is. Um, old wigs. So, maybe? and when I read Burke, I said, oh, wait, this is me. This is right. It's a combination of understanding the importance of, of change and progress with understanding the importance of not throwing everything away and imagining you can design from scratch. It's also Hayek. So um, you're a better person than I to answer the point you just made, Jonah. But I know my answer. I'm but, more curious about your answer. Well, I'm, I'm puzzled by it because it seemed to me that, that the ideas of conservatism, both the libertarian branch, which stresses rule of law and individual rights, and the Burkean branch, which stresses continuity and the importance of institutions and other guardrails, to protect us from ourselves, both of those should have protected conservatism from becoming what it is, which I don't think is conservatism in any meaningful sense. I'm not sure. I can think of all kinds of labels, but conservative doesn't seem like one of them. Right. And so I don't really understand why the ideas were blown through, like as Adam said, like a whale passing through a net. I mean, when, when, push came to shove, it seemed like all the stuff that conservatives had said and believed, and really do say and believe, just simply gave way before these forces of, of tribalism and populism and what Orwell called bully worship. And it seemed almost as if this extrusion of much more fundamental atavistic human needs for strong leaders, for enemies, people not like us, for stories conspiracy theories that explain why we didn't win the election, why we're losing, that all of this just, just burst out and overran two centuries worth of conservative thinking. And I kind of look to you for answers on that. I guess one interpretation is conservatives were never really serious about that. I don't think that's right. I mean, I know a lot of conservatives and I know they're serious. And so maybe the other explanation is that his original sin, that human beings are just much more cognitively flawed than we ever realized, and that we rely more than we ever thought on these institutions and values that are inculcated, and sometimes not even rational seeming, to keep us out of trouble. Maybe that's it, but I don't. I look to you to figure this, this out. Well, I, I'm, I've been working on it quite a bit, and this is part of the reasons why I'm doing this thing about you know, liberal fascism reconsidered. But, um, I, I think your second point is that's where my I am at is that um, I was absolutely convinced that conservatism because of, I'm I'm a fan of dogma, um, and I 
long made the argument that that uh, I'm a, I should put it this way. I'm a fan of good dogma. And whenever I hear liberals say that they don't like dogma and don't be dogmatic, um, I'm, I like to have fun with them and say stuff like, okay, so you think we should get rid of our society's dogmatic opposition to ritual human sacrifice or torturing puppies? Because, I mean, that's part, that's dogma too. There's all dogma means coming from the Greek is basically that stuff that you take for granted is part of the, you know, that seems good. That is just, you think is natural. This is a settled question. I very much do not want to open up our dogmatic opposition to chattel slavery and all these kinds of things. And I thought that conservative dogma was much stronger, much healthier uh, than it is and, or than it turned out to be. And one of the questions I have to ask is how much of it came from, uh, was it weakened or was it always that weak? You know, and I'm much more on the, it was weakened point of view. Um, and I think that these, you know, I, I, I grow weary. I mean, I agree with it's, it's unavoidable when you're writing to say, as you do in your book, there are these issues on the left and the right, and they're not symmetrical. They're not identical, but they are part of this common story about the war on truth and all of these kinds of things. And cancel culture is very bad and blah, 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 blah. But in some ways, just even saying both sides are on the left and the right, you get to this problem of making it sound like these are problems of left-wing or right-wing ideology, when really right. they are problems about American culture, about human psychology, about the breakdown of institutions. And it is only understandable <clears throat> that those problems would manifest themselves differently on the right and the left, but the root causes of those problems go much deeper. and. Um, th and I, I still think one of the biggest problems we have in society, which you've, you know, spent decades writing about is this idea that one's emotions have supremacy over reason, fact, argument, um, and all these kinds of things and how, how an, a fact makes you feel is supposed to determine how we treat that fact. That is something that there are snowflakes on the right all over the place. I mean, every time I write that the election wasn't stolen, I get all this, how dare you? You know, who are you to say the election wasn't stolen? Um, and, uh, and there are definitely snowflakes on the left. And, and I don't mean this, I just mean snowflakes as this sort of shorthand for the, the kind of people who lead, who think that their feelings are supreme above everything else. And that to me, I still think is the biggest problem. The particular problems on the right also have to do with the fact, you know, there's that famous French, he's not famous, Savarin, I think is his name. There's a, a French intellectual who famously said, there go the people, I must go with them for I am their leader. We have institute, we institutionalized on the right, this populism ink stuff where, um, it, you know, Fox News was always more populist than it was right wing. You know, the New York Post where I've been appearing for a long time. Uh, and I should say I'm a Fox News contributor. Uh, but the New York Post was always a New York version of populism. Trump was always a kind of bridge and tunnel populist. And a lot of that populism that you get in New York um, turns out to map pretty well with populism out in the rest of the country. And an enormous number of leaders of the conservative movement 
who could not understand that being a leading conservative intellectual is not the same thing as being a professional political or media consultant for the party, um, got corrupted by the fact that they, first of all, could make a lot of money telling audiences what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. Um, they also liked being famous and a lot of people like being famous. I'm not immune to some of these things. I like getting paid money. I like being recognized in airports. I don't like it enough to do some of the things some of my friends do, but, um, and I, I think a complex web of institutional dysfunction and human nature, um, and this war on institutions that you've been talking about for a while, plus the inherent nature of populism, just simply wore down the the bulwarks on the right, and um, and you know the the the, the days where National Review was a gatekeeper, you know. I, National Review still, I'm not a National Review anymore, but National Review still tries to be a gatekeeper of sorts. The problem is the walls that made the gates important and gave the gatekeepers a function have all been toppled. And so what's the point of guarding the gate when people can just go in from any direction? Um, it makes it very difficult to have third-party adjudicators and legitimizers um, saying, hold on, don't go to Gateway Pundit, that's garbage. When people are conditioned now, both on the left and the right, because I'm saying it too, to find the sources that affirm what they already believe rather than question it. And that's an America problem. And I don't have a great solution for it either. Well, the big point you're making there is one that's, I think, so so correct and so important, but hard for people to take on board, which is that the tools that are that people are now using, organizations like I would put Fox News in this camp, politicians like I would put Donald Trump in that camp, um, these tools are not ideological in nature. They're oriented toward ex exploiting flaws in the human psyche and in our social environment, but they can be weaponized in any direction. I'm not afraid of critical race theory. Um, I wasn't afraid of Marxism. There are a lot of ideas that have a lot of bad in them, but also some good in them. I've learned from critical race theory. The problem becomes when techniques are applied by people using those theories to silence or suppress other arguments. Now, that's not about the theory of, you know, is America a racist country? What is institutional racism? That's about information warfare, which I define as organizing and manipulating the social and media environments in order to dominate, divide, and disorient an opponent. That's the game that's being played here. On the left, through cancel culture, which uses social pressure to suppress one side of the argument and magnify its own. And on the right, using information warfare tactics like the fire hose of falsehood and conspiracy bootstrapping. These are not, the tactics themselves are not ideological. The problem is we can't have the healthy debates about the idea that conservatism depends on and that the country depends on in an environment that has a, an information environment, an epistemic environment, really, that is losing touch with reality and where trust becomes non-existent. So the challenge is, how do we deal with these, what the Russians called active measures, which are now being deployed at scale against the American public, primarily not by foreign, foreign powers, but primarily by Americans? The first step to that is understand there's a still a huge amount of strength in the reality-based community. This is the third big point of my book. 
it seems like the other side is 10 feet tall, but they're not. We are. Fantastic institutional depth. The, the shot, the vaccine that, that went in my arm a few weeks ago that's now protecting me against COVID is just the latest in the fantastic successes of this, the ability of the reality-based community, the social network to mobilize resources on a global scale, target them, build knowledge at an astounding rate. We make more knowledge every day in the reality-based community than throughout the, the entire first 200,000 years of human history. And a lot of that is still there and still strong. It needs to get focused, and it needs to understand that there is a coherent, sustained attack on it. The second thing that has to happen, the reason I wrote this book, is that folks like Jonah Goldberg and many others need to understand that epistemic warfare is what's going on here. It need, they need to make, frankly, the point you just made, which is to distinguish ideology from epistemic warfare. You need to understand what's going on, and you need to let people know they're being manipulated so they can understand that. A population that understands these tactics is harder to manipulate. We see that happening already. We see changes in the design of social media, little by little, which I think are going to make it harder to weaponize tactics like attention hijacking. Uh, we, can, we, we should talk about these countermeasures because there are a lot of them, and they're very interesting. Media, I think, is getting more savvy, though it needs to get much savvier about manipulation of the information space. But for example, you see less repeating of conspiracy theories in order to debunk them. Uh, that's starting to happen. We've got now academic centers around the world that are studying disinformation, penetrating the disinformation networks. This stuff is coordinated. It's not centralized, but it is coordinated. Donald J. Trump was coordinator in chief. But they're looking at these networks, they're understanding the conspiracy theories as they're hatched, they're tracing how the networks operate, they're alerting the social media companies. That's a big change. Uh, I think Facebook's new oversight board is very promising because historically, this isn't the first of these huge information disruptions, epistemic disruptions we've had. They go back to the printing press. And historically, we've dealt with them by building new guardrails, new norms, institutions, protocols ways to figure out how to handle these, these situations. And we do that through institutions like the American Society of Newspaper Editors a century ago, which promulgated codes for journalists, you know, run corrections, double source, be careful about blind sourcing, all the stuff we take for granted. That was put in place by human beings, journalism schools that taught it. Facebook is taking a stab at building that kind of infrastructure. So those are the kinds of things that we got to focus on, and they're not especially ideological. They're more about rebuilding these epistemic social structures. All right. So um, listeners don't really need to know this, but we had a, uh, a, a biblical interruption in technology here for a minute there, and we're coming back. Um, I want to change gears just sort of slightly. Going back to your point earlier about how the marketplace of ideas metaphor or analogy doesn't necessarily work i'm in part because stuff i've learned from yuval um i i've become much more interested in the m metaphors that people use to describe how society works and um i'm kind of with thomas Les leonard the, the the princeton historian who says that you should always watch out when you hear anybody 
use body politic, you know, in terms of likening society to a single living organism, because that gets you into a lot of, a lot of bad things, whether in the medieval period or in the early progressive era, were based on this idea that the entire society needs to move together as one functioning body. And, um, I, uh, and I agree with you that the marketplace thing leaves something to be desired as well. I kind of like the concept of an ecosystem because in an ecosystem, you have the individual players that have, um, that are at once competing with other individual players, but at the other side, and sometimes literally in the Spencerian sense of survival of the fittest, but the total net product of all of that interaction is the spontaneous order, which is incredibly important and vital. And it seems to me the part of what you're getting at um, is the importance of the right to be wrong, um, which is something that seems to be central to the founding of liberalism properly understood 300 years ago. You know, the Westphalian peace put to end the idea that you should kill people, that you should use swords to, you know, settle intellectual or theological disagreements and people could be wrong. And we've been unfolding that idea for the following 300 years and changing what we mean by wrong. But, um, um, at the same time, you know, do you think that the word constitution has some problems to it as well? Because when people in America hear constitution, they think of the constitution and not this invisible, uh, you used to talk about hidden law, um, system that, that, you know, it's very hard to put on a bumper sticker. Yeah. It's a problem. I try to deal with it in the book by saying again and again, that what I mean by the U S constitution isn't just the words on paper, mm -hmm. because as we know, the words on paper are only the beginning. And as, as the framers of those words told us, unless we get a lot of other things right, like civic virtue and many kinds of social norms, like change of power, peaceful, peaceful rotation in office, the words on paper just don't matter. That's all they are. So I, I try to deal with that by saying, look, for the U.S. Constitution, it's not just the stuff on paper. That's in some ways the least of it. It's everything that came after. It's institutions like Congress and the courts and judicial review and popular elections, which were not in there originally, except for the House. Um, and reverence for the Constitution, which Lincoln said was so important. And all the things that happened to embody the Constitution, you know, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Revolutions, all of that is what we're talking about. And this big social system that we rely on in politics to negotiate with each other and the courts, you know. So the point I try to make in the book is that the analogy isn't from the piece of paper to the scientific community. That's a pretty obvious disanalogy. It's to the on both sides we have social systems that are doing the same thing, which is forcing us to obey impersonal rules to solve conflicts and thereby using those conflicts as actually tools to bring about cooperation, to force cooperation. And that's how we get cooperation on a global scale. 
So that's, but yeah, all of these analogies, they're imperfect. Because they're analogies. Um, um, so I, 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 I want to circle back, you know, we're, before I was rambling about the different, the, you know, there's an asymmetry between left and right. And you've been making the point that a lot of these tools and techniques are not necessarily ideological. They're, they're tools and techniques and, and that can be picked up from either side and all the rest. It does seem to me though, that look, I, I, I'm totally with you that Donald Trump lies like some people breathe and, and he lies and then you have, a bunch of quotes from him from going way back about how part of it is just to get people to stop trusting the media at all and experts at all and all these kinds of things. That's not ideologically driven by Trump. That is a condo salesman's weird narcissism on a national scale scale, right? I mean, there is, I mean, he, there, 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 I don't think Trump has much of an interior life generally, but he certainly doesn't have a coherent ideological frame of mind. The left, speaking broadly, does. And I'm just wondering, you know, like the left has spent a vast amount of time and energy, again, speaking broadly, playing games with deconstructionism, right? Playing games with, uh, you know, the member of the social text controversy, um, using the credibility of institutions to uh, steel bases intellectually rather than make their case. I mean, I, I personally, I believe that climate change is a thing, but I don't believe there's such a thing as settled science in a large sense, or the, at the very least, you wouldn't need to call things settled science that are in fact settled science. You only use the phrase settled science when you want to, um, claim, make an appeal to an authority that you need to do because you can't make the case on your own. Um, and so much of the language, the partisan language of the left about science is on my side. I own, you know, that, that, um, I'm going to follow the science and we've seen with the pandemic that, um, no, it turns out there's a culture war aspect to this follow the science stuff too. When people keep wearing masks after they're told they don't have to, um, how, you know, how do you, I, I, I hate asking the question this way, but I'm just kind of curious what your answer would be where do you lay the blame for a lot of this stuff in turn, in the sense that I don't think 10 years ago, you could make a lot of these arguments about, um, you know, the, the war on the, the epistemic crisis on the right. I mean, I think you could point to some fever swamp people, but it, it basically didn't dominate any elite conversation on the right, but this epistemic, this war on sort of um, epistemology on the left has a lot of people with tenure, you know, and a lot of people writing famous, you know, books going back to Sartre and Camus and, you know, the, uh, and, and, you know, the, the Duke English department. So, I mean, like, I, I'm struggling here. I mean, part of my problem again is I don't, th this is my own problem of wanting to revert back to say the ideas are what's driving all of this. And I don't think that they are, but you know, how do you, how do you respond to a conservative kid on a college campus who says to you, didn't they start it? You know, I respond. The honest answer is by saying I'm not all that interested in that question. Uh, okay. Because you, you, can, you can chase that rabbit down any number of holes. I think in a way you're asking about 
the point that you made in your first book, which is, is there something kind of inherent in the ideas of the left or many of the ideas of the left that are fundamentally hostile to liberalism, small l, and to pluralism, such that they really can't coexist, even if they try in the long run? And I don't have, I don't have strong feelings about that. I feel like there's a whole lot that's wrong and dangerous in Marxism. I mean, Marx is Marxism, not Marxism-Leninism. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of that's, wholly, that's wrong and dangerous in Marxism-Leninism, too. <laughs> well, that, I think Marxism-Leninism, we do cross into an ideology that is fundamentally anti-political. Right. Um, but there were things we could learn from Marxism. Um, there are aspects of deconstructionism I'm a fan of. I've been actually, in my own view of science, and a lot of philosophers of science who are very mainstream have been very influenced by this guy, Paul Feyerabend, who's kind of a, a leftist who came along and said, well, there is no such thing as a scientific method and there shouldn't be. So a lot of these ideas can be enriching and not dangerous if they're embedded in liberal pluralistic society mm-hmm. where they're not given the opportunity and the tools to overpower the conversation and use various forms of social coercion and intellectual coercion to intimidate and isolate and suppress diversity of viewpoint. So I'm not really sure I know the answer to your question, Jonah, because it's hard for me to understand where those boundaries are. I have learned a ton from critical race theory. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually important. Um, I'm tempted you know, to, to use in conjunction with it Charlie Schultz's old witticism about supply-side economics. You remember that? There's nothing wrong with it that couldn't be fixed by dividing it by 10. <laughs> so there, there are very important truths to be had there. So the question becomes, so can you, can you have the argument about race in America and about inherent racism, about the nature of racism and about what white supremacy is and about what whiteness is? Is there such a thing? Can you have that argument without also shifting into an authoritarian political mode? I mean, what do you think? I guess in your first book you said no, but I like to think it would be possible. Now, look, again, I think it is I think it is possible. I think that um, Daniel Burns wrote a wonderful piece for National Affairs a while back about how the debate over liberalism misses the fact that um, we are, there's the difference between liberal theory and liberalism applied, and we're still, we're just a liberal country. It's a liberal culture. It can go off the rails in one respect or another, but. Um, uh, you know, I think that we give too much credit to John Locke for his political stuff when in fact his political stuff was not all that influential on the founding fathers. It was his, it was his epistemic stuff that was really in some ways more important. And, um, but regardless, not one American in 10,000 behaves the way they do because in their head, somehow they're referencing John Locke. They're doing it because this is just a fundamentally liberal culture and you can have wrong ideas that if carried to their caricature, you know, extreme would be dangerous to, to, to liberal culture and to liberalism while actually living a fairly liberal life. I mean, we both know people over the last 30 years who held some wildly wrong ideas about things. And then you meet them in person and they're perfectly decent, nice people who are at least polite 
and behave by social norms. And I, I think there's a lot more of that going on in the culture than, than we appreciate. Um, and I, so part of my problem with the critical race theory stuff, I, I'm with you in, in large part there, I've learned some stuff from that. And as a, as a general principle, I think the argument about institutional racism has plausibility and logic and, and, um, and I probably agree with it in certain, some cases, and I completely disagree with it in other cases, but the idea that there could be standards and practices that are vestigial from previous generations that we haven't scrutinized that could have, um, racially unfair, disparate impact seems obviously true to me. And I've, you know, I defended Pete Buttigieg for talking about racist infrastructure and all that because there was racism involved in where we put roads and railways and all that kind of thing. My part of my problem is what you're talking about, about the weaponization of this stuff, that if you don't agree with the regnant theory of the left, that is simply proof that you're racist rather than just saying, I disagree. And, um, I think defunding the police is, is incandescently idiotic idea politically and morally. Um, that doesn't make me racist and it doesn't mean that I'm in favor of, um, police abuse. It just means I think it's just as a matter of public policy, moronic, and as a matter of partisan politics, insane for Democrats to talk about it. All that said, so I'm a big fan of, I'm going to, I'm going to do a really pretentious name drop here and bring in Pareto and Nietzsche. And, (laughs) um, uh, you know, the, the, so much of the stuff that we see that you write about, about the cancel culture, the stuff that happens at the New York times and the Atlantic and these various places that, um, uh, where the staff feels unsafe, right? I mean, my friend, Kevin Williamson lost his job at the Atlantic because people felt he, they would be unsafe working in an office where he worked, even though he was not going to work at their office, he was going to stay in Texas. Um, the Tom Cotton op-ed, all that kind of thing. Some of these people absolutely sincerely believe everything that they're saying. But some of them are practicing this technique that Nietzsche and, oh, here you go, and Kierkegaard talk about with resentment, where what they use is they use the, they take what were considered the virtues and the values and um, the ideals of the elite and through a campaign of uh, misinformation and uh, denigration, they turn virtues into vices. And it is a way to dethrone elites and replace them with yourself. Nietzsche writes about it in the genealogy of morals. Pareto writes about it in sort of his Italian elite theory stuff. And when I hear Ted Cruz, for example, talking about how, you know, there is an elite in this country that's telling you what to do, blah, blah, blah. This is a guy whose wife is a, is a managing partner of Goldman Sachs. And he went to Harvard and Harvard law and clerked on the Supreme court and all these kinds of things. He's an elite too. And I find that so much of the culture war, particularly the intra-culture war stuff, the, the younger right-wingers attacking the right-wing establishment or the younger left-wingers attacking the, you know, the liberal or the leftist establishment has so much less to do with ideology and so much more to do with weaponizing whatever they can to get people who are in their way professionally and in terms of status. And I'm not saying that explains everything, but it explains a lot more than people appreciate. And it gets much less attention. This, this desire to just sort of take down the people who are in your way to getting the big job or the brass ring or, or whatever. 
that's a big motivation. It's a very human motivation. And it is what, one of the things that is driving a lot of the weaponization of ideas on the left and right internally and across from each other. I, so I, I, is, I, it, I, is it orthogonal to ideology? When you say orthogonal, I mean, I know Nixon loved the word, but I can never remember how to use it can, correctly. Can you, can you distinguish the techniques from the ideas that the techniques are being harnessed toward? Sure. Okay. Um, I'll give you just an example. This is not intra right or intra left. It's more across the aisle. But a couple of days ago, Dave Weigel of the Washington Post saw some some story about how uh, Indians were emerging from the pandemic, and and um, and he made a what he came to regret as a dumb joke about how. I guess this means call center call, you know, uh, uh, scammer calls are going to increase or something along those lines. And he deleted the tweet. We can have an argument about whether it was in poor taste or not in poor taste or racist or this or that. But he was attacked viciously by a bunch of sort of trollish right wingers for his racism. And they weren't. These are not people who would attack. Uh. Ben Shapiro or Glenn Beck or, or Jason Miller or any of those kinds of people, if they had told the same joke, what they're doing is they're taking the other side's standards, pretending that they're their own and using them against people. Um, we saw this a lot with Donald Trump, Mike Pence, whenever he was asked about some absolutely insane thing that Trump would say, he would say, well, he was elected to be a disruptor. And then, um, when, uh, some Democrat would say something objectively less offensive, Mike Pence would suddenly be, well, I'm really saddened and disappointed that Nancy Pelosi would stoop so low and talk that disrespectfully. And there's a huge amount of this in our culture war fight where people don't actually hold the, their own principles. They borrow principles from the other side or their opponents and use them as cudgels against them and pretend that they're actually their own standards for the purposes of attacking people rather than actually living up to them on their, on their own right. And I think that is a, you know, it's used in culture war, own the lib stuff, but it's also a, a standard that's used internally at a lot of institutions and the, 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 the opportunism and the nearest weapon to hand ism of it suggests to me that it's not really an ideological thing. It is an, it is a cynical tactic. I agree with that. I think it's interesting to speculate that that represents an evolution on your part away from the model of liberal fascism. It's been a long time since that book. You remember we had lunch way back in the day when I tried to talk you out of the title. Um, you, I, I, because I, I that, thought many, many people I liked and respected <laughs> at the time tried to do that. I thought at the time it was conflating tigers and pussycats mm-hmm. and, and kind of saying the, in, the left is inherently has these fascistic tendencies, which are just just inherently there and, and will out. And I think what you're saying now is more accurate, which is that you can distinguish the epistemic warfare tactics, the, the domination, um, the use of, of, of these various cudgels from the ideologies to which they're being harnessed. You can distinguish those things. And if that's right, then this trick in this situation is not to be hair on fire necessarily about critical race theory or whatever it is today. It's to be hair on fire about the people who have found all of these mechanisms 
to weaponize one side of the argument and suppress the other. And that includes the argument about emotional safety. I think there's a fair amount of cynicism about that argument because I think a lot of the people who make it kind of actually know that they're not really endangered, but have discovered a point that is in our therapeutic culture very hard to counter, which is I feel unsafe, that has negative emotional consequences, therefore I can't learn if I'm at school or I can't report if I'm a reporter. You have to do something about this. I think they do that primarily. Maybe they've talked themselves into it, but I think they do that because it works. I think a lot of the trolling that goes on online work. People do that because trolling is a great way to hijack people's attention. They rise to the bait. We can't help it. It's a human cognitive issue. You know, when someone attacks our tribe, we feel obliged to go to the front lines and show solidarity. These tactics of disorientation and confusion that Trump is such a master at using. Conspiracy theories. All of these things are ideologically independent, but they're all exploiting these flaws. So the question is, can we protect ourselves? Can we immunize ourselves? Can we vaccinate ourselves cognitively, epistemically against some of these things? I think the answer is yes, because we've done it in the past. The way we do that is to force ourselves into channels that are predefined and that that force our thinking into more impersonal forms, like, for example, this is going to date me. Some people will be shocked. But if, if I want to write an article against something that Jonah Goldberg has written, I probably won't begin it, Jonah, you ignorant slut. And I certainly won't begin it that way in an academic article. Well, why not? Because that would get me a lot of attention. Well, we set up mechanisms that make that kind of behavior self-defeating. We disincentivize it. You know, you're marginalized. No one takes you seriously. You're a kook, et cetera. So that's what works. And the first step there is to getting wise to the tactics and distinguishing the tactics from the ideology, I think. But that's kind of a different course than conservatives have been on and, and still are on. I think they're still focusing primarily on the ideology and not the tactics. No, I think that's fair. Um, I think that's fair. I think um, I, I think one of the things that has, and I'm partly to blame for it. I don't know. I don't deserve a lot of blame, but I certainly deserve some. The obsession with Saul Alinsky that has emerged um, over the last 15 years, which says, that basically the left runs everything. They did it because they only care about power and they think that whatever they do towards the pursuit of power is self-justifying and therefore we need to be just like them um, as uh, sunk in all over the place. I, I wrote very critical stuff about Saul Alinsky. I did it to criticize him, not to praise him. And yet, the, and it was, it caught on a lot on the right in the subsequent years. But the, the takeaway they took from it, a lot of people on the right took from it, was we gotta we gotta do we gotta do our own right wing Alinskyism, and that has caught on majorly among a lot of the sort of Bannon world kind of conservatives, and it breaks my heart, you know. And I, I think that the conservatives who understand the bullshittery of all of that um, are caught in a hard place about how much to condemn it and how much to sort of ignore mm -hmm. it um, and how much to amplify it. And a lot of that has to do with these business models. A lot yeah, of it has well, to do with popular front politics. Something very interesting that happens, we know this from historians of Russian propaganda. One problem with using these tactics is that after a while, the tail wags the dog. 
it mm-hmm. becomes very difficult even for the propagandist to distinguish lies from reality. Because remember, they have to fool a lot of people. The best way to do that is by fooling yourself. Um, you make it very hard in classic propaganda disinformation to tell which documents are real and which are forged. Um, so you very quickly find, actually, that these strange conspiracy theories, which may originally be you know, promulgated cynically, take over the conservative movement. They take over people's brains. People start believing them. You get a mass departure from reality among conservatives. And I, I can't see how that will end well. That is not good for the conservative movement, even in a tactical political sense. I agree with you entirely. And, I, and you're sort of making my point in this debate about how I, I, I've always had this problem. It's very hard to articulate of treating people of various ideological factions as if they are members of identity politics groups. If you are born black, you're going to be black for the rest of your life. And you can talk about a black person in a way that, I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the appeals of identity politics is this immutability of it. You know, if you are gay, you're gay and like, that's it. And, um, but if you're a conservative, you can stop being a conservative. You can become a liberal. You can become a radical sort of authoritarian right winger. You can become all sorts of things. Same thing if you're a liberal. People change over the course of their lives. I've, I've met very few people around our age who didn't have different views 30 years ago than they do today to one extent or another. And um, the, the, the talking point that this was always what conservatism was about misses the fact that so many people have become drunk on populism, drunk on this conspiracy stuff that their brains have changed. Their outlooks have changed. I mean, uh, Dinesh D'Souza gave a really interesting interview to Haley Bird in the Weekly Standard a few years ago where he just basically admitted, it's like, I've given up on a lot of that stuff I used to believe on. And I now think it's all trench hand-to-hand combat and we don't have to try to persuade anybody anymore. We just have to win. And there are lots of people on the right who now see things that way. There are lots of people on the right that if you told them in 10 years, you know, if you told them 10 years ago, you're going to be a nationalist. You're going to call yourself a nationalist. You're going to embrace nationalism. You're going to reject the idea um, that the Supreme Court should be uh, a strict constructionist or a textualist or you know a, a, a whatever or original understanding person. Instead, you're going to want the Supreme Court to simply uh, change its jurisprudence to reach the conclusions that you want, and then come up with a pretextual rationalization for it in the law. If I'd said that to a bunch of people that I knew, you know, that are now making those kinds of arguments 10 years ago, they would have been outraged. They've changed. A friendly, a friendly amendment to that, which is, I think it goes even beyond that because at some point, pretty quickly in the process, the manipulator becomes the manipulated. Mm-hmm. And we see what's happening today, which is you have the big lie campaign, which was organized by Trump starting in April of 2020. It was a massive propaganda campaign, the likes of which we've never seen. But then the rank and file absorbs it. They adopt it. They begin dreaming up their own conspiracy theories. They realize, hey, this is fun. They begin demanding that their politicians follow up on those conspiracy theories. And pretty soon the politicians who may have thought, or the activists who may have thought that they were somehow controlling and manipulating the environment are dragged along behind. They can't control this thing. And the conservative movement spins out into a fairyland where it simply loses touch with reality. And it loses the ability to get back in touch with reality. Because once you're into one of these cycles where you've got the public and the elites competing with each other to sell new and stranger ideas, 
in order to touch all their hot buttons. It's very hard to interrupt that. The greatest advantage the reality-based community has is reality. The one thing this system does very well is over the intermediate and longer term, it keeps you in touch with reality because that's the only way you can put a vaccine in someone's arm that's actually going to work. These other systems, trolling, canceling, disinformation, they don't have any of those guardrails or buffers. They can spin completely into outer space, and they often have in the past entire societies, Soviet Union, for example, essentially completely lost touch with reality, and ultimately it demolishes them. It's addictive in the short term, but epistemically, it's a suicide pact, and I think we're already seeing that among Republicans. Uh, just one other thing I want to throw in, I know we have to wrap up, but, but on our point of distinguishing um, the techniques from the ideology, um, one of the interesting things that's happening that I think is, is going to turn out to be a game changer is a lot of liberals, including a lot of progressives, have tumbled to the fact that these authoritarian tactics that are now being used by, you know, counselors and places like academia, um, that they are now targeting progressives too. There's no longer a safe conduct pass on the left for being on the correct side of these issues. And people on the left have started to figure out, wait a minute, these tactics can be used against me or anyone. This isn't ideological. This is about power. So now you see, you know, the, the canceling of David Shore, who is, a, mm. I think, left of center, maybe socialist. I think he calls himself a socialist. Brilliant guy, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant guy. You know, he just tweets out an academic study uh, accurately and he's triggers a pile on for no particularly good reason, except that some people could do it and he's fired the next day. So a lot of people look at stuff like that and say, wait a minute, I get it now. This isn't about ideology. It's not an anti-conservative thing. This is a power play by certain people in the debate who simply want to dominate other people in the debate. I think that's a, that's a big change. Uh, the realization that there is no ideological safety once these weapons are out there. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I, I think it's remarkable. I have really not changed a lot of my views on, on public policy type things. Right. Um, but the mere fact that I've been willing to criticize Donald Trump and I reject this, I mean, I've just lost my taste for the trolling smash mouth stuff. Um, all of a sudden being a essentially classical liberal right, a right of center classical liberal type. Um, I get all this strange new respect from, from left wingers and it kind of make, you know, classical liberals are now basically centrists in this, <laughs> in this weird climate. And, um, it feels like that should be something that can be built on. Like I have, I have real disagreements with some of your colleagues at Brooklyn's about all kind of thing, all the, and that kind of thing. But I can have conversations with them because there is this sort of just this, I mean, you make this point about how the intelligence, what was it? Uh, the, uh, the, how even the intelligence community is now sort of finding a weird ally with, with the media and, and whatnot, because, the whole coin of those realms is trading in facts. And if you can have a polite conversation with somebody you disagree with, that kind of makes you a centrist today in, in this messed up climate. And it feels like that should be something one of the parties should be able to build on or some new party should be able to build on. But I don't, I, I don't see that happening. It takes time. It takes time. I, I ask people to remember that one side of this, this argument has these very powerful new tools and some initially appealing arguments like emotional safetyism. And they've, they ran the table 
because no one was prepared for any of that. No one imagined that an American president would run a massive Soviet-style disinformation campaign against the American people. That was inconceivable until Donald Trump did it, and now the Republican Party is doing it. And so, yeah, the reality-based community got caught completely by surprise, and it's going to take time to reorganize, to figure it out. Um, I think we're starting to see that. I wrote an article recently for Persuasion.community about the sudden upsurge of grassroots groups that are pushing back against various aspects of illiberalism. One of them, counterweight, which is uh, defending employees who are targeted with you know, forced speech mm-hmm. and various kinds of indoctrination or cancellation. It's run by Helen Pluckrose, who is a feminist socialist in London. The people behind the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, another new group, which is developing anti-racist curriculum that, that is not anti-white and which is going to bat for parents whose kids are coming home saying, so daddy, am I a white supremacist? Um, They are left of center. Um, A lot of these groups are liberals in the old-fashioned sense, the people that you can break bread with, the pluralists, who have figured out that liberalism is not consistent with the tactics that are now being used on the left. And I think that's an encouraging sign. I do too. I for sure I do too. Um, I know we got to go. I just I'll put a pin in this one thing. Several times now you've talked about propaganda campaigns in the United States, um, and talked about like Leninist and Nazi propaganda campaigns. At some point we got to have a conversation about what Woodrow, what Woodrow Wilson did here, because even the sainted Robert Nisbet said that the Committee for Public Information and uh, the Wilson's effort in the lead up to the war was the first example of a modern propaganda industry in Western civilization. And they did many, many terrible, terrible things. And the, the cultural memory holding of all of that is one of the things that made us more vulnerable to when Trump did some of that stuff. But I, I, you can respond to that or we can just let it go. But I, just, I wanted to get that in there because my listeners would be shocked if I didn't bring this up because one of my mad animating passions is, is Woodrow Wilson was a bad president. These are old tactics, and they keep <laughs> finding new people who can weaponize them and put them to work in new ways. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute that. Okay, Jonathan Roush, thank you so much for coming on. The book is the Constitution of Knowledge. Um, we'll put all of this stuff, the National Affairs essay, all that in the show notes. Um, love to have you back on. I remain, as always, a big fan. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Jonathan has left the building. Uh, I highly recommend the book. Um, I'm not done with it yet, but it's it's a really useful and interesting way um, to think about the problems that we face. And it's it's even handed in the sense that it kind of has that that thing that Jonathan is so good at, which is to sort of be a little bit of a visitor from another planet and see these problems as they're marbled through the culture rather than just sort of trying to, you know, set out to, to attack the problems that fit a worldview. And, um, and Jonathan's just like one of the smartest people I know. Uh, we are holding this podcast until, um, pub date, which will not seem weird to you when you actually listen to this, but it has thrown us into, quite a tailspin because we now don't know what podcast to run today. Um, but it turns out that they wanted us to hold it 
And um, so this is just a little message in a time capsule from a week ago saying, help, because we don't know what to do. Um, and uh, with that, uh, thanks for listening. Please, if you can, you know, we're, we're, we're hitting this, you know, this window where a lot of people who signed up um, when we launched or when, when they first heard about us, you know, those year that those year subscriptions are um, winding down. And so far the renewals are great, but we hate to lose anybody. Um, and we would love to get everybody. So if, um, if you haven't signed up to be a paid member of the dispatch, I promise great things, even more great things are coming. That would be great. Um, and beyond that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.